0: If you have spent any time in church, you're probably familiar with the story that we will find in these chapters of the book of Genesis, and that is the story of Joseph. And I also, though, in saying that, don't take for granted that there may be some of you who have never heard that story. If that is you, that's fantastic as well. But oftentimes the temptation is, and and the struggle is, and I've been even guilty of this, is that when we walk through the Old Testament and look at different narratives... We often have a tendency to elevate the person that's found in that narrative. And so oftentimes, I've been even guilty of this from time to time, is to be able to so focus on the person that we elevate them to almost a superhero type of status. Not really emphasizing that they have a sinful nature, or they had a sinful nature just like you and me. And I think that's oftentimes done especially with... Joseph, that oftentimes when we see this story, is, is oftentimes the, the aim is this, that man, stick to it, don't quit, and things will work out great in the end. But I think if we just solely focused on that, we would sell this story short and frankly, I believe, be unfaithful to God's word. Because really in understanding the story of Joseph that we'll find in this series, we really need to go all the way back to Genesis 3.15 in the Garden of Eden and when Adam and Eve Eve make the choice to sin and God has to drive Adam and Eve Eve out of that garden because that sin has separated them from having a relationship with a holy God, is that God says something and gives a glimmer of hope and a really sad part of of the creation story where, where God in essence says, that I am going to crush the head of the enemy. And even in that phrase in Genesis 3.15, it looks forward to the day where Jesus will come and will live a perfect life, a life that Adam and Eve couldn't live and a life that you and I can't live and die on the cross for our sins and and be risen again so that we can have victory and hope and have a relationship with God and a home in heaven that awaits us one day. And, And all the way back in Genesis 3.15, God speaks of that coming Messiah. And then you come to Genesis 22 and you find Abram, whose name is changed to Abraham, who is the father of Israel. And in that time in Genesis 22, God gives Abraham a promise. He says, Abraham and you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that I am going to produce out of you a race of people a nation from which... The Messiah will come, which is what God is referring to when he says, Abraham and you, all the nations of the earth, will be blessed. And so when we come to Genesis 37 through 50, what we see is we see a people that have grown and have multiplied But in the story of Joseph, we see that in all the events of Joseph's life, that even though it's not wrong and we're going to focus on decisions and choices that Joseph made that compel us to make certain decisions and choices according to God's word that we have, but in the broader scale, what we see in this story is the faithfulness of God, that God providing and protecting his people through the provision of one man, Joseph. And so I think so often in our lives, what oftentimes happens is, and if we're honest, would we not say that life is not a straight line from beginning to end, but it's a zigzag, it's a backwards and forwards. But just like you would take a prism or a crystal or something, you would see all the jagged edges and you would see all the different lines, and though it's not straight like a ruler, but in the midst of that, it's a beautiful prism that allows colors to be highlighted that would not be highlighted otherwise. And as we'll see in the story of Joseph, that the ups and the downs and the twists and the turns, in spite of Joseph being a godly man, that in the midst of those circumstances, Joseph is able to look at the end of his life and to be able to say, wait a minute, I see a purpose and I have a plan, and I see, God, your faithfulness in a way that I never would have seen had those things not happened. And that's really the aim of this series. For us to rather than judge God by the circumstances in our life, that we would actually look at those circumstances and see them as a prism that we will one day be able to look back on and say, God, I've seen your faithfulness in a way that I would never have seen otherwise. And so that's really our aim in this series for the next 11 weeks. But this morning we find ourselves in Genesis 37, verses 1 through 11. So would you look at me in verse 1? We're going to read all the way down to verse 11 this morning. And in verse 1 it says this, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph being 17 years old. So let's stop there. How old did it say Joseph was? Say it out loud. 17 years old. It's a key thing to keep in the back of your mind, not only for today, but as we walk through this story for the next 11 weeks. And it says, Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, and he was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, which is another word for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And so what you need to understand is, Jacob, when he was looking for a wife, earlier on in the book of Genesis, he saw Rachel, he was attracted to her, he wanted her to be his wife, but but Jacob was, was really a deceiver and a shyster, though we don't have time to get in all the intricacies of that. And so Laban, Rachel's father, tricked Jacob to rather than marrying Rachel, marrying Rachel's older sister Leah. And so then Jacob had to work more years so that he could marry the woman that he really wanted to marry. And so Rachel could not have children, though Leah gave him many sons. And so the reason why, one of the reasons why Joseph was so treasured by Jacob was because Joseph was Rachel's son, because Rachel had been barren for so many years. And it says, And as that's marinating in your brain, I know your mind's going to a lot of different places, just stick with me. We're going to stop in verse verse, uh, 4. It says, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So let me give you a context of how we get to where we are In verses 1 through 4, and Joseph being elevated to a place above the rest of his brothers. Because I think one of the important things, and you've heard me say this before, is when you're walking through a narrative, it's so important to put yourself in the story. Like even in your quiet time, when you're reading through a story, just don't buzz through it. Like put yourself in the narrative of, of man, what would I have been experiencing during this time if, if I was one of the brothers or if I was Joseph? Because the reason why Joseph is elevated to this place is really contrary to what was done in Jewish circles at the time, because the firstborn was the one that was elevated, was the one who would get the double inheritance, which is who was the one that would carry on the family business and the family name and be elevated to a higher status in the family. But that wasn't the case, because Reuben was actually the oldest. But in Genesis 35, verse 22, we find that Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, slept with his father's concubine, Bilhah, and Israel, Jacob, heard of it, and because he heard of it, he was obviously upset by that, so he removed that firstborn inheritance from Reuben, and by removing that, then Jacob could choose who he would give that double inheritance to, and rather than choosing the second brother in line, he chose Joseph. So just put yourself in the story. Think of the sibling rivalry that already exists when you were growing up in a home with multiple siblings, let alone adding this drama to it. Like this is like made for a soap opera today, right? And so Jacob is given, or Joseph, I'm sorry, is given this prominence, and he's given this robe of many colors. Let me stop there because some of you are probably saying, what in the world, he had two wives, he had concubines, Like he's showing favoritism. Yeah, you know what that shows me? We see that over and over again in the Old Testament. People going contrary to God's ideal plan for their lives. But what it also shows me is the mercy of God. How God takes messed up people and turns their mess into something good for his purposes. And that's seen out throughout all the Old Testament. And at the same time, I've never been to a parenting conference. And I don't think you will ever be where Jacob is ever mentioned as a model for parenting right? Like you're never going to go to a parenting conference and say, turn your Bibles to Genesis 37. Let's look at what a godly father looks like. Jacob, let me just say it. Let me just, Jacob's a lame dad. Lame. So just look at a person and say, lame. Lame dad. Lame dad. Not the greatest. But yet at the same time, God uses this family, obviously, who is going to be the 12 tribes of Israel Later on in in God's narrative, but you find this phrase, robe of many colors, and don't we oftentimes think of it like this? This picture on the screen, we think of this this robe that's very ornate and colorful, and that's what we saw like growing up in Sunday school. Anybody remember flannel graph? Anybody in the room? Flannel graph? Yep, yep. Okay, I remember flannel graph. I remember the teacher putting the flannel graph robe up on but it really, the, that, that phrase, robe of many colors, in the Hebrew is actually very nebulous as to what it actually means. Here's what we know this coat was. It was a coat that showed to everyone else that Joseph was now been, has now been given Jacob's inheritance. Because normally... What was done, the tunics that people wore were half sleeves and they went to the knees. And that was a tunic of a working man. So Joseph's brothers would have had those tunics. But Joseph was given, the idea of robe of many colors has the idea that this tunic went down to the, to the uh, all the way down and had sleeves to the wrist and went all the way down to the ankles. It was a robe of someone who did not work, but was of a prominent nature. So just think of how much that upset Joseph's brothers. He's got this prominence. He's got the inheritance. He is Jacob's favorite. And now we come to verse 5. So if it couldn't get any worse on how Joseph is seen by his brothers, now we come to verse 5. It says, now Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I've dreamed. Hey, guys, i got a dream. You don't see anywhere where where his brothers are like, oh, we can't wait to hear it. Verse 7, behold, we are binding. This is Joseph talking. We're binding sheaves in the field. And behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. Not a great dream to Joseph's brothers. Verse 8. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then in verse 9, he dreams another dream and told to his brothers and said, Behold, I've dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. So now he shares this other dream But in this dream, the whole family is mentioned. It says in verse 10, But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come down to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept this saying in mind. If you're taking notes this morning, and I hope that you are, here's the title of the message this morning. The Truth About God-Given Dreams. Because here's what I want you to understand today as we look at these 11 verses now in greater detail, is that you and I have been blessed with a God-given dream for our lives. You've been blessed with a God-given dream for your life, and if I'm going to make that statement, then it's very important that I define what I mean by a God-given dream. So here's a definition of a God given dream a revelation or a strong desire from the Lord that provides direction for your life. That's what I mean by a God given dream. And every one of us have one. Every one of us have been given something that's God given, that this is the direction that God wants, uh, wants for our lives. Because I believe dreams are a way that God leads you and guides you into your identity. You know what I mean by that? Who you are in Christ. And dreams are a way that God leads you and guides you into understanding that in a greater way. But not just your identity, but also your calling. What God has called you to do with your life. And everyone has a dream in their heart. Many of you probably have multiple dreams in your heart. So it's really not a question of what dreams do you have, but it's really asking this question, are those dreams God-given? Because here's something that we need to understand right from the very beginning in the first week of this series. God-given dreams are not about you. Look to the person next to you and say, it's not about you. You'll enjoy this, trust me. Yeah, it's not about you. God-given dreams are not about you. They're ultimately about God. And they're about Him. And they give us a framework to fulfill God's ultimate purpose for our life. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about this. What is my ultimate purpose in life? To glorify God. If we're going to use self-help language, it's thinking with the end in mind. And I think about if we put ourselves in the story, sometimes when we read the Old Testament, we think, and this being no different, like, man, wouldn't it be awesome to just hear audibly from God? I think that'd be pretty awesome. Be little question to whether or not you heard from God. And we read these Old Testament stories and we think, man, that'd be so awesome to be given a dream that so clearly knows it's from God or be hearing audibly from God. But what we fail to realize is in, as we read, Through the Old Testament, we're like, oh, okay, God spoke again in this chapter, and he spoke again in that chapter. But what we don't understand often is there's decades, years, from the time that God speaks once to when God speaks again. But for us today, we have something that Joseph didn't. We have the whole counsel of God. We've been given a framework that Joseph didn't have. There was no written word of God during this time in Genesis 37. But today we have a framework by which we can determine, are the dreams that I have God given? And here's the framework. I already mentioned the first one in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's a framework. Do my dreams fit in line with that? Do these dreams, do they have the end game to glorify God? Because remember what I said, God-given dreams are not about you. They're ultimately about him. Here's another great framework that we have in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 18. It says that we've been entrusted with the ministry of reconciliation. That's a fancy word for the gospel. That the way that God has chosen for people who have yet to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, the way that God has chosen for them to hear that message is you if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 20, Paul describes us as being ambassadors, representatives. So I've been given a tremendous framework by God by which to determine whether or not my dreams that I have today are God-given. Do they glorify God? And are they after the purpose of being a messenger of the greatest story that will ever be shared of how Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again for your sins? And so I say that because what I want to do this morning is just give you some things before we get into this passage of how do I identify a God-given dream? How do I identify that? If I said we've all been blessed with a God-given dream for our lives, and it's pretty important that we set up some questions for us to really discern whether or not the dreams that we may have today or in the future are God-given. Here's the first question we need to ask ourselves. Does your dream contradict precepts or principles from God's word? Precepts meaning clearly you can find the chapter and verse where God says you need to do this or not do this. So to make it super clear and super simple, you go to Exodus 20 and it says, You shall not kill. Pretty clear that God is not a condoned murderer. Pretty clear. So that would be a precept. A principle would be that Jesus, when he's talking about the law of Moses, says, the law of Moses says you shall not commit adultery, but I say whoever looks at a woman and lusts after her has committed adultery in his heart. They didn't have computers back then. But there's a principle that says that I need to guard my heart and what I put in front of my eyes, man or woman, So that I'm not causing myself to have an opportunity to lust after someone other than my spouse and have affections for someone other than my spouse. So I'm not going to put things in front of my eyes or put myself in positions that would cause my heart to lust after something, someone who has not been given to me. That's a principle. It's taking something that's said and applying it to our everyday circumstances for things that are not specifically addressed. There's no computers, there's no TV, there's no online dating, there's none of those things mentioned in the scriptures, but I can take that precept and draw a principle out of it. Does that make sense? So I'm looking at this, and if I'm saying, well, Lord, is this from you? Is this a revelation or a direction from you? The first place I go, I go to the counsel of God, and I say, is there anything in God's word that would contradict that? You say, man, that seems simple. I can tell you over and over again, I've had so many conversations with people where, I, where they graciously and sincerely tell me I believe God wants me to do this. And I'm like, I can think of seven passages of scripture right now that tell you specifically not to do that. That's why I say, first place we go in determining whether or not I have a God-given dream is God's word. Here's the second one. Have you prayed about your dream? Have you prayed about it? And I don't mean just quickly praying Lord, I believe you want me to do this, but I'm going to pray it anyway. No, no, no. I mean like getting on your knees and spending some time and weeks and however long it is and just crying out to God and saying, Lord, what's your desire in this for me? Does this meet up with godly wisdom found in Ephesians 3.20? Like where's your heart in this, Lord, and and taking some time to even fast and and to just Determine, Lord, are you in this? Here's the third thing. Have you sought godly counsel in regard to the dream? Like, have you actually gone and approached some people that you know know God's word as well and, and you trust and you know that they're gonna point you in the right direction, and you know that that they even love you enough to tell you no? See, I can always find people who will agree with whatever I want to do. That is not hard. But it's finding people who love you enough and know God's word enough and have demonstrated that there's some wisdom in them and how they live their life and going to them and saying, let me tell you about where I believe God may be directing me. Here's the last one. Is there an overwhelming desire that says, if you don't follow this dream, you're disobeying the Lord. I can tell you in my life that, though not... Always faithful every time that this is a big one for me, that, Lord, I'm not moving unless I believe so strongly that if I don't do this, I'm disobeying you. And I promise you, if it's a God-given dream, he'll bring you to that place. See, dreams are a difficult thing, though, aren't they? Because there's a time gap between when you believe you're given that direction and when you see the fulfillment many times. Can I get an amen? Oh, yeah. Sometimes that's days, and wouldn't that be awesome if every time it's days? But sometimes it's weeks, it's years, could be decades. And in the midst of that time gap, there's all sorts of emotions excitement, anticipation, happiness, to disappointment, discouragement, and despair. And so, if that's the reality, then here's what I want to do this morning and the rest of our time. I want to give you four things that we need to understand about God given dreams. From this passage of Scripture, And really what I want to do this morning is give you some overarching things that encompass the entire story of Joseph as an overview. So four things we need to understand about God-given dreams. Here's the first one. They will humble you. They'll humble you. Can we look at at the text again in verses 1 through 4? Just look at, let me highlight some things. What does it say? Joseph was how old? 17, right? He brings this bad report, and that word report is used in the rest of Scripture in the negative sense, giving the idea of an untrue report. And then you have this adjective in front of report that's, that's in, if your translation is the ESV, which is what I'm reading from, says bad. So it's not that this report was, was a lie, but it's the idea that it was probably exaggerated. Anybody of you have siblings that you grew up with? Or you have siblings that you live with right now? Has this not ever happened? And I'm the oldest in my family, so I'll probably be a little biased when I make this statement. But it's usually the youngest that does most of the tattling. Right? And that's kind of what's going on here. Don't look at your sibling right now. But that's kind of what's going on right now is, is you have this idea that Joseph was really tattling on his brother's. So think about it. Joseph has been set up to think so much of himself by his father. Remember what I say? Jacob is a lame dad that by God's grace uses in a mighty way. But we can't discount that Jacob's choices were not great. We're not good. We're frankly sinful. So Jacob's choices sets up. Joseph, he's got this coat of many colors that that is a coat of, of someone who is of prominence. He's the youngest of his brothers. He's tattling on his brothers. He's been given these dreams. And what does it say? His brothers could not speak peaceably to him. In other words, literally, they rejected his every attempt to be friendly to them. They wanted to have nothing to do with him. And in spite of that opposition, then Joseph gets two dreams from God. And he goes and tells his brothers these dreams. And no surprise, his brothers hate him even more. But here's what I find interesting. Is at this point in Joseph's life, here's what Joseph didn't know about those dreams. He didn't know that God was going to use those dreams to humble Joseph to a place to be the man that God desired him to be. He wasn't that man yet at 17 years old. But God gave Joseph those dreams and part of that purpose was is so that Joseph would be humbled so that he could be the man that God needed and desired him to be. Not just for him personally, but for the nation that he promised would bring forth the Messiah. And dreams, don't they always, if not almost always, play out differently than we expected? But the reality is the point of having a dream is not so much to tell what is going to happen in the future as much to refine us in the present. Because what did I say? God-given dreams are not ultimately about you. And they humble us. Because God is about refining us into who he desires us to be. So the dream isn't just about the future, but it's how we are to live in the present. And God is against us knowing the future. Wouldn't it be awesome to, sometimes we think, wouldn't it be awesome to know what the future is? Wouldn't it be awesome to know how that dream is going to manifest itself in reality? And here's, I've thought that from time to time. And there's other times that I think, man, I'm so glad I didn't know how that was going to play out. Because I would have been in a fetal position with my thumb in my mouth rocking back and forth. But the reason why God's not about us knowing the future is because he's refining in us a trust that he is in control. Because if we knew the future, then there'd be this desire in us to trust in ourselves rather than to trust in God, to be prideful in ourselves and what we know, rather than learning what it looks like to be humbled and refined by the very God who gave you the dream. 1 Corinthians thirteen twelve says, For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. You know what that means? Is that as I gave that prism analogy, dreams oftentimes play out so differently than we thought. And and the first thing we need to understand, as I said, is they humble us. But it's in that that we are able to look back maybe decades or, or years or maybe even weeks, if it's weeks, and be able to look at it and say, ah, that's why God did it that way. And what a blessing to be able to be able to do that! But there's going to be certain things in our lives as well that we're never going to know exactly why that happened the way that it did until we're face to face with Jesus. That's what that means. Now we t- now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully. Even as I have been fully known. First thing we need to understand about God-given dreams, they humble us. Here's the second thing. They will stretch you. They will stretch you. Because I've experienced this, and I'm sure if you've lived any amount of life, you've experienced this with things that you believe that God has called you to do. They are so much harder than you thought. I think oftentimes if if everything that you do is easy, I would question whether or not it was God-given. They're so much harder than we would imagine. Joseph in Genesis 37 and verses 5 through 11, you know what he didn't see? He didn't see that he was about to be thrown into a pit. He didn't see that he was going to be sold into slavery. He didn't see that even though he was going to flee sexual immorality, that he would be falsely accused and thrown into a dungeon for years. He didn't know at this time that even in God using him, that he would be forgotten for another two years by the people that he interpreted their dreams. Joseph didn't know any of that. Because God knew, Joseph, I not only need to humble you, I need to stretch you. Because I'm about what I desire to do in and through you. And we so often romanticize the future. If you're younger here this morning, you're a college student, you have a whole world ahead of you, and we get those dreams, so many times we romanticize the future. Let me illustrate it this way with just marriage. Don't we romanticize this idea? And it could be linked to so many different things that, that, oh, I can't wait to find that person who's just the one. There's so many Messed up things about that idea that we don't have time to get into. But the one. And then I will look across the room and our eyes will lock and I'll find the person that was made just for me and me just for her or him. And when you look at Scripture, you know what Scripture says? We're all sinners. And I love what Tim Keller says in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. None of us are good for one another. I wasn't good for Lori, and Lori wasn't good for me in and of our nature. Why? Because we're all sinners. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7. It's not usually a passage of scripture that's ever quoted in a wedding. Here's why. Because in 1 Corinthians 7, there's this phrase in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says, those who marry will have worldly troubles. (laughs) Never put on a plaque at Hobby Lobby to hang over your bed. (laughs) Right? Right? But we romanticize the future. That's just one simple illustration, but we romanticize the future about so many things. I think about myself. I remember in 2007 in northern Pennsylvania and feeling like God was leading us to plant churches in southwest Florida. And I remember sharing that with that church that we love dearly. And first of all, overcoming the hump that in northern Pennsylvania, you're telling people you want to plant churches in southwest Florida, like you really got to convince them that it's a God-given dream. But I remember thinking about that and being 30 years old, I was 30 years old, and, and you know, every book, nobody writes a book on how their church plant failed, You only read books that like, man, we opened the doors and boom, 500 people showed up in the second week, right? And so I remember going there with such zeal, moving our family down there, not knowing what to expect, but having such aspirations of what God would do. And you know what I realized? And I don't have time to go on the nuances of all that, but you know what I learned? Church planting's hard. It's a dream I had. I have no doubt it was God-given. And it did a lot of humbling. And I'm not done being humbled Until I see Jesus and neither are you. But it did a lot of humbling. And it did a lot of stretching. But here's what I also learned. We never need to chafe against the circumstances that God allows to come our way. Because it's in those circumstances that God uses those things to weave a tapestry. So that he can have ultimate glory so that we can see those circumstances as that prism, though maybe not in the moment we can look and say, wow, God's faithfulness was put on display in a way that I would never have seen otherwise. James 1, 2 through 4, you know this passage of Scripture, but I want to read it because I think it reminds us of this principle of God-given dreams stretching us. It says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You know, it's so important to not allow your present circumstances to be the lens by which you view God and judge his faithfulness, but rather allowing your understanding and your experience and knowledge of God's faithfulness to be the lens by which you view your circumstances. Because we see that here. What, Paul, what James is saying is, here's what we know. That the testing of our faith produces steadfastness. Some of your translations may say endurance or perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not perfect in the sense of sinless, but in a way that God is, is growing you in a way that you have tremendous faith in who God is that you did not have before the stretching. Here's the third thing. They will teach you to wait. God-given dreams will teach you to wait. How old was Joseph in Genesis 37? Say it out loud. 17. And as we're going to see throughout these 11 weeks, it's 22 years between Jake, Joseph's dream dreams and the fulfillment of them. And I know exactly what you're thinking. Lord, please don't allow it to be 22 years. But it's 22 years, 17 when he receives a dream, 30 when he becomes second in command, 39 before the dream starts to come to pass. And here's what we know, the waiting periods that we have in life are so much longer than we expect, aren't they not? I hate to wait, can I just say that? Can I be honest about that? I hate to wait, I hate to wait in lines, I hate to wait for anything, I hate it. But the waiting, get this, the waiting that God allows us to experience is refining and causing us to learn and grow in our understanding of who God is and His faithfulness to you. That's why I said so many times we focus on the future and in so focusing on the future or what God hasn't done in the way that we desired. Or God, you're working out this dream so much different than what I expected. And we so focus on that that oftentimes we miss God's faithfulness being put on display in the waiting. Because we're going to see a phrase that's mentioned over and over again in Joseph's life during the waiting. And it's that phrase, and the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with them. And the important thing of every believer is to be living in the light of God's presence, knowing that his or her life is being guided by God's hand. And it's easy to forget that God doesn't work on your timetable. I forget that so often. God, you're not on my timetable. I'm on your timetable. But Lord, your timetable is designed to work in such a way that it causes me to see and to learn and to grow that you are doing something bigger and greater than I could ever imagine. Psalm 37, 7 through 9 is such a great passage of Scripture to get across this idea that we so often struggle with during the waiting. Look at what it says. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Over the man who carries out evil devices. Because isn't that what we do? God, why are you allowing this to happen to that person? They don't care anything about you. I'm trying to serve you. I'm trying to be a testimony for you. I'm trying to do these, all these things and live according to your word. And God, you're not working this out the way that I thought, but look at them. Look at what it says. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. What we fail to realize is any good that's happening to someone who doesn't care at all about God is God's mercy on them. But there's going to come a day where the mercy will end. And those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the best is yet to come. Here's the last thing. God, that we need to understand about God-given dreams, they will accomplish more than you could imagine. They will. They will accomplish more than you could imagine. Because you know what I see in this story of Joseph that we'll see unfold in the next 11 weeks is God had to strip Joseph's dream of his own ego and idolatry. Because though it doesn't say it explicitly, it does implicitly give this idea that Joseph is a little full of himself in Genesis 37, and who would not be? But God had to strip Joseph's dream of his ego and his idolatry. And listen, understand this, get this, that God deals with the idolatry of the dream before he brings the dream he gave you to completion. Because it's so easy for me to idolize whatever dream it is. It's so easy for me to take that God-given dream and to actually worship it rather than the God who gave it. So easy for me to find my significance in that God-given dream, to find my identity in that God-given dream, to find my achievement and my accomplishment in that God-given dream. And God is always going to strip the idolatry of the dream before he brings the dream to completion, and we're going to see that in Joseph's life, because God is about growing in us contentment in Him in him, not what we achieve. And that's Paul's point in Philippians 4.13 where he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That verse is so botched up in its interpretation, right, that God, I can do anything that I want as long as you're by my side. And yes, that's true, but it's almost like a rub a genie in the bottle dream where Paul is really getting at is whether I'm high or whether I'm low, I have contentment in either circumstances because it's you who gives me strength to endure those things. Here's something else we need to remember, that God is bringing us to a place to see the dream that he has given you and given me as something to steward and not to spend. Joseph in Genesis 37 is like, guys, I got a couple dreams about me. You want to hear them? But in those 22 years, God is doing something to get Joseph to say, God, here's the reason why you gave me those dreams. He gave them to me to steward, not to spend on myself. And that's such a struggle, is it not? To start to think that the dreams that God has given us are all about us, but what did I say at the beginning of this message? It's not about you, it's about him. And I'm so thankful, as I said, that God-given dreams accomplish more than we could imagine, and oftentimes it's not by human metrics. Oftentimes it's not determined by a balance sheet, Or any of those things that we oftentimes will determine human success, but it's by the metric of God. Because remember, Joseph being obedient and being godly and making choices according to what God wants was used by God to preserve his people by which the Messiah would come. And Ephesians 3:20 20 and 21 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I love that, those, these two verses because they remind me that, God, your dreams for my life are so much bigger than mine. And it's according to the power at work within us. To him, here's the purpose, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So as we close this morning, let me ask you a question. What are you dreaming for your life? What are you dreaming for your life? Because every one of us have been blessed with a God-given dream. And here's the thing, there's even some times where God allows a dream to die so a greater dream can be achieved. And so as you think about that, what's the dream that I have? Does it fit in those parameters that we gave? Is it truly a God-given dream? We need to ask ourselves, you need to go home and you need to say, Lord, let me run this desire through this grid? Are we allowing circumstances to be the lens by which we view God's faithfulness, or are we allowing God's faithfulness to be the lens by which we view our circumstances? Maybe we need to ask ourselves, man, where am I trying to resist the process and refining of waiting, and I need to sit in it? And I need to not miss that even in the waiting, God is displaying his faithfulness to me. And God, I don't want to miss that anymore. You know, Ephesians 2.10 is such a great verse because it fits in line with, so well with what we've said today. Where Paul says, for we are his workmanship. That God is doing a work in and through you. We're a workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works Look at this, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's why I say every one of us has been blessed with a God given dream. God has a purpose and a plan for your life, and you're not going to miss it as long as you're pursuing after Him because you're His workmanship. So let's not resist the humbling, let's not resist the stretching, let's not resist the waiting. Because we know that God is going to accomplish so much more than we could imagine for his glory, for his honor, for his kingdom.